Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. This is the second part of our discussion on universal basic income, or UBI for short. If you missed the first episode, I do recommend going back. It is going to help. But just to quickly recap, UBI is the idea of the government giving every citizen free money. While the idea has been with us for centuries, no developed country has actually passed UBI into law but the US and Switzerland came quite close to doing this in the past. And although we don't have the perfect experiment on UBI, the evidence we do have suggests a slight reduction in work, but people tend to use this time in productive ways. And in the modern debate, UBI seems to be more popular than ever before, with US presidential candidate Andrew Yang uh, having UBI as his flagship policy. A common theme of Hidden Perspective will be to examine different political issues through different political lenses. It won't always be this way, but for many issues where this makes sense, it will. UBI is one of those examples. So today, we're going to look at why progressives, or generally people on the left side of politics, are arguing for UBI. Next episode, we'll look at libertarian and conservative support for UBI. And in part four, we'll dive into what could be wrong with this whole idea, the arguments people are making against UBI. To start off, without getting into semantics here, I'm going to use the term progressive as a broad term covering those on the left, broadly people who believe in progress through social reform. Obviously, this bucket term isn't ideal because there are many variants of political thought on the left. I know in the US, for example, there seems to be a difference between a liberal and a progressive Ultimately, these labels can get messy, especially from country to country and over time. So just know that when I say progressive, I mean those on the left, whether that's center left or further left than that. All right, with that tedious clarification out of the way, what do progressives think of UBI? Some hate it and would honestly just prefer that money going into existing welfare programs, but we'll get to those people in part four. But many others actually support it. Most prominent of those is, naturally, US presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Along with others, like former union head Andy Stern, the argument is that the fourth industrial revolution is here and we need UBI to help us through that. Things like robots, artificial intelligence, automation are set to completely transform the economy and the nature of work, killing millions of jobs in the process. Basically, shit's going to get weird really fast. Yang calls it the greatest technological shift in human history. Bain and Co. say it's going to be four times more vicious than the Industrial Revolution. Now, to be clear, we don't know this for sure, but there are some pretty intense predictions being made. There's an Oxford study saying that 47% of US jobs and 54% of European jobs are at high risk of being completely automated. McKinsey say 45% of all tasks can be automated, and between 20 to 30% of jobs subject to automation by 2030. Some sectors will get screwed more badly, it seems. McKinsey reports that 73% of food prep jobs will be automated, 
and the trucking industry, which is the most common job in 29 US states and employs over 7 million people, is likely to be the first industry automated by self-driving trucks. And the problem goes beyond automating the warehouse worker or the truck driver. AI is also coming for white-collar jobs, like lawyers, accountants, and radiologists. The even deeper concern, though, is with something called AGI, which is Artificial General Intelligence. The idea that computers can possess human-like intelligence and even perform complex problem-solving tasks that can't be automated away with just narrow AI, which is what we're seeing currently. Behind this is Ray Kurzweil's prediction that by 2029, computers will be just as intelligent as people, and by 2045, they could be a billion times smarter than all human brains put together. Now, many people are skeptical about this claim, but if true, this is endgame for human jobs, but again, probably unlikely. Putting aside these predictions, some are saying the fourth industrial revolution has already arrived and is having a huge impact on workers. US labor force participation is at a three decades long low. 22% of men in their 20s with less than a bachelor's degree have done no work in the last year, which is up from 9% in 2000. For these men, 75% of time that used to be spent working is now in front of a computer, mostly playing video games. 59% of Americans can't pay for a $500 unexpected bill, and only 34% of Americans feel financially secure. Yang says that half the people who lost manufacturing jobs in the American Midwest left the workforce entirely, and half of those people went straight on to disability insurance. And roughly 80% of manufacturing jobs lost since 2000 is due to automation, not to offshoring to China and other countries, as people like Donald Trump say. Another strand of this argument is, if AI is putting millions of us out of work, how will anyone afford to buy anything? To people like Yang, UBI is needed to initiate a trickle-up economy, where those at the bottom can still meaningfully participate. On this particular point, there's an anecdote of Henry Ford's grandson. He was giving labor union leader Walter Ruther a tour of the company's new automated factory and jokingly asks, Walter, how are you going to get these robots to pay your union dues? Without missing a beat, Walter replied, Henry, how are you going to get them to buy your cars? So there is this sense that UBI is needed to keep the economy afloat as automation ramps up. The automation argument for UBI doesn't stop there, though. Yang and others raise an ethical concern, basically that the market assigns value crudely, or the logic of meritocracy is driving us to ruin, in Yang's words. People who aren't smart shouldn't be blamed for losing their jobs. It's not like truck drivers are getting dumber and lazier overnight. You might be thinking, if automation is screwing over workers, shouldn't labour unions be stepping in? Former union boss and UBI advocate Andy Stern sees it differently. As Andy Stern concedes, unions now play a limited role because the economy is being transformed by new technologies that will automate more tasks and require fewer full-time jobs, and it also marginalises the role of collective bargaining, leaving a dearth of dues-paying union members. As it turns out, he's right. In 1950, 35% of US workers were unionized. That was only 27% in 1972 and less than 12% in 2016. To make matters worse, 94% of new jobs created since 2005 are either contract or temporary jobs, which by definition aren't unionized. To provide some balance here, many people call bullshit on this automation argument. 
Here's Naval Ravikant, Silicon Valley entrepreneur and angel investor, making his case for why the automation argument doesn't stack up. That automation has been happening since the dawn of time. Mm-hmm. Man, when electricity came along, that put a lot of people out of work. Did it? <laughs> right? A lot of people carrying buckets of water and, you know, lighting lamps and all those kinds of things. And this was the concern uh, with factories as well, Yeah, right? abs- everything. Literally every single thing that comes Even along. Even the printing press. Absolutely. Right? Sure. And what it does is it frees people up for new creative work. So the question is not, is automation going to eliminate jobs? There is no finite number of jobs. <laughs> we're mm-hmm. not like sitting right. around dividing up the same jobs that were around since the Stone Age. <laughs> so obviously new jobs are being created and they're usually better jobs, more creative jobs. So the question is, how quickly is this transition going to happen? And what kinds of jobs will be eliminated? And what kinds of jobs will be created? It's impossible looking forward to predict what kinds of jobs will be created. If I told you you 10 years ago that podcaster was going to be a job or that uh, you know playing video games is going to be a job or commentating on video games mm. is going to be a job, you would have laughed me out of the room. Those yeah. are nonsense jobs, but yet here we are. So society will always create new jobs. Civilization creates new jobs, but it's impossible to predict what those jobs are. So the question is, how quickly is that transition happening? Well, the reality is, even though everybody keeps talking about this automation apocalypse, we're at a record low unemployment. Explain that. People like Yang and Sturm normally have a response to this, which is, yeah, even if the Industrial Revolution has happened before, those revolutions had terrible social consequences at the time, which took many years of adjusting. As for unemployment, it's low because people have left the labour market altogether, as shown by a decades-long low participation rate. If you don't know what the participation rate is, it's basically the percentage of people of working age either working or looking for a job. The higher, the better, because it means more people are contributing or trying to contribute to the economy. So what people like Yang and Stern are saying is this. Low unemployment can be misleading if it results from people who have stopped looking for work. And the data appears to back up this claim. According to the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, labor force participation since 2013 has been hovering around 63% well down from its peak of 67% in the early 2000s. However, I will note this seems to have plateaued in recent years and could be back on an upward trend. In any case, the problem seems to be particularly concerning for men. In the late 1960s, almost every man between the years of 25 and 54 was working. But in 1970, 5% of men within this age group had stopped working. This went up to 11% in 2000, and 16% in 2016. But it seems productivity is the real sticking point for the automation argument. If automation really were raging on, we'd expect labour productivity to be on the rise. No, people would be more productive because they'd have machines to help them along. But by historical standards, labour productivity growth is quite low in the Western world. According to the US Bureau of Labour Statistics, productivity change in the non-farm business sector was 1.3 from the years 2007 to 2018, well down from 2.8 from the years 1947 to 1973. Some speculate that productivity hasn't actually improved because high-skill workers have simply moved down to lower-skilled jobs with lower productivity, which negates an overall change in productivity. However, that's just a theory. So that's the automation argument for UBI. But progressives also want UBI as a cure for, unsurprisingly, poverty. Some people are poor, therefore giving these people money eliminates poverty. Simple. 
Or, as UBI advocate Eduardo Suplicy says, the way out is through the door. But it's not only lifting people out of poverty. These people are also arguing that UBI does more than that. It gives people financial security, which is much more important. That's because uncertainty undermines resilience, which can lead to further problems like homelessness. Let me give you an example of what these people are talking about. There's a salon writer called Gleb Sapersky, who volunteered at a food bank. Gleb meets this lady called Jaylene. She'd been living paycheck to paycheck, so didn't have $110 to replace her car tire. As a result, she couldn't get to work, and because of this, her boss fired her. She couldn't make her rent and was soon out on the street, all because she needed $110 at the right time. UBI completely changes that. At this point, you could be a bit sceptical, as I was. Aren't the poor poor because they can't spend their money? Money isn't the problem. It's The problem is that these people aren't motivated. These people don't have an incentive or don't have the motivation to get their lives in order. I'm sure this could be true for some poor people, but there's new research contradicting this view, the view that the poor can't help themselves. Princeton psychologists Elder Shafir and Harvard economist Sendhil Mullanathan have been working on what they call the new science of scarcity, which looks at how poor people behave compared to how they would behave if they had some money. It turns out that when you're poor, you live with what's called a scarcity mentality, which restricts your mental bandwidth. This makes you focus all your attention on short-term problems like, how will I make the rent, and not on long-term planning like, should I go to school? There's evidence that drops in mental bandwidth can lower your IQ by up to 14 points, which is crazy to think about considering that having an IQ below 83, according to some reports, disqualifies you from being admitted into the US Army. So if you can't even be admitted into the US Army, how are you meant to find a job which requires a higher IQ? Intuitively, this scarcity science makes sense, right? You see this all the time with homeless people who are putting all their effort into getting a few dollars to scrape by. How can they be expected to be making rational, long-term decisions to the same extent as people who have these basic needs covered? So while we might think that the poor are poor because of a lack of discipline, a lack of work ethic, whatever it could be, it turns out that poverty itself is a downward spiral, undermining your mental capacity to climb out of poverty. Or as the genius George Orwell put it, almost a century before this new science of scarcity came around, quote, the crux of poverty is that it annihilates the future. Now, there are some other arguments being made by progressives for UBI. Some say that UBI is necessary for freedom. Both Philip Van Paris's real freedom being the genuine capacity to do whatever you might wish to do, and the traditional notion of republican freedom, basically the freedom from potential or actual domination. Now, this includes the freedom to refuse an unpleasant job, to stay in a job that pays less than previously, to start a business, to do care work for friends and relatives, to do creative work, and other freedom a small income gives you. Which brings me to a more controversial point. A big concern with UBI is that people will stop working, right? Now, most UBI advocates deny that this effect will be very large and might only be single-digit drop-in hours worked, but these people also acknowledge that UBI redefines the nature of work itself. If UBI influences how people spend their time, this isn't necessarily a bad thing because UBI pays for work that goes unpaid in the market. Here's Andrew Yang. 
So we're in the midst of the greatest economic transformation in human history. And we need to start finding new pursuits and jobs and ways to value our own time. And one of the examples I use that my wife is at home with our two boys, one of whom has autism, and the market values her work at zero. And they're millions of women around the country in the same boat where we're like, your, your time is worth zero. And we all, we all know that the work she's doing is some of the hardest and most oh important God. work that anyone does. Yeah, you know, in a way we have to transform what we think of as tangible value. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you make another human being stronger and healthier, <laughs> that's actually that's good. Yeah, immensely valuable. Yeah. It's just right now our economic statistics don't value that uh, appropriately. Essentially, to people like Yang and others, UBI's payment for jobs like childcare, housework, or looking after an older relative, work that is currently unpaid. In one sense, I think they have a point. It's strange how the market assigns value. If you book a cleaner for your home, you pay them a wage, but if you clean it yourself, the work is unpaid. The work itself is the same, so why aren't you also compensated? But other UBI advocates take this point further. Guy Standing argues that UBI stimulates productive leisure with more reflective laziness in the spirit of the ancient Greek term skole, noting that we need to slow down in this world of consumerism. Now, this is probably one of the more controversial arguments coming from progressives in the UBI debate because we've built our economies around the idea that buyers and sellers determine the price of goods and services, not some arbitrary UBI amount. Sure, you can agree with the sentiment of UBI paying for tedious care work that goes uncompensated in the market economy, but the UBI is an incredibly blunt way to do this because it doesn't distinguish between the person taking care of a sick grandmother and the person who's just playing video games. These aren't of equal value, but UBI says they are. If UBI is meant to assign value more humanely than the market, advocates need to explain why two people spending time in completely different ways, offering different social value, can be paid the same amount. But this isn't where progressives stop, with some arguing UBI is necessary for social justice. Again, here's Guy Standing. It's a means of social justice. This goes back to Thomas Paine and Henry George and people who said public wealth is created over generations. And any of us know or should know and have the humility to know that our income and wealth is fundamentally due to the contributions of previous generations and much more than anything you or I do ourselves. And therefore, if you allow private inheritance, we should also have public inheritance as a social dividend on public wealth created. That means of social justice is fundamental behind why I believe in a basic income. To explain this point, Guy Standing gives an example of the town Middlesbrough in his book Basic Income. In the 1880s, Middlesbrough was the hub of the Industrial Revolution. It still built the Golden Gate Bridge as well as the Sydney Harbour Bridge. But today, the town is apparently surrounded by wasteland and weeds. And at the same time, much of the wealth of people living in more affluent parts of the UK was created by these workers in 1880s Middlesbrough. Is it fair these people should have more comfortable lives? For this reason, we need UBI. Again, critics would say this is a radical point because it reconceptualizes the meaning of private property rights, 
workers in 1880s Middlesbrough were compensated for their work at the time, even if this was a small amount by today's standards. How can you say that people who live there now have a claim to work completed in their town more than 100 years ago? And also, accepting the right of personal inheritance doesn't mean everyone agrees with social inheritance. It's one thing to leave your home to your kids when you die, but it's another thing to leave it with the state. So that's the social justice argument that some progressives are making. One thing we haven't addressed is the elephant in the room. If you mention UBI to people, particularly people from older generations, they might look at you funny and think, this sounds a lot like communism. I'm good. But here's the thing. These people who say it's a lot like communism aren't that far off the point. Let me explain. There was a famous article published in 1986 called A Capitalist Road to Communism, written by two academics, Philip Van Paris and Robert Van Deveen. Mind you, Philip Van Paris is still a very prominent UBI advocate in the modern debate. Now, at the time they wrote this article, prospects for the left were bleak. Socialist societies weren't that attractive, and overall, most people had lost faith in socialism. So, the authors suggest that maybe socialism isn't the best route to communism. Maybe it's capitalism. Why not embrace capitalism's tendency for productivity and innovation for communist ends? Basically, their point is this. UBI can twist capitalism's incentives to increase productivity, right? It pushes up wages for unattractive work, as fewer people now accept these jobs, and it decreases wages for attractive work, as people are more willing to accept a lower wage. Eventually, businesses will automate all the unattractive work, which is now too expensive to pay people to do. And what happens when all the unattractive work is gone? The work that remains is so attractive that it's no longer considered work. Eventually, the idea of work itself is abolished. Automation has eliminated all human drudgery. And ultimately, all products and services are distributed according to needs, not contribution, which is the key Marxist aim. Safe to say, not all progressives believe in this theory. I doubt many have even heard of it. It's very much an academic theory that hasn't hit mainstream circles. But it's there, in plain sight, a theory that clearly outlines the UBI route to communism. If you're thinking UBI sounded a bit like communism, in one sense, you're not far from the truth. And on that note, that's where we'll end today's episode. Just to quickly recap the various arguments progressives are making for UBI. First off, there are the practical arguments, which view UBI as a buffer to the effects of the fourth industrial revolution and as a cure for poverty and financial insecurity. Other progressives want UBI to secure freedom and social justice. There's also the argument that UBI compensates childcare and housework, which currently go unpaid in the market economy. And finally, there's a strange niche link to communism. So I hope you're now in a better position to make up your own mind on these arguments. Next time, we go to the other extreme. Why do small government, freedom-loving libertarians love UBI? I'll see you then. I think they're all insane. If you got value from this episode, please do me a quick favor. First, hit subscribe. And second, leave a five-star review if you're podcasting, or hit the like button and the notification bell if you're YouTubing. There. Too easy. See you next time.